Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Midcast podcast live stream. I am your host, Manar Mohawish Adley. This is an interview series featuring dissenting voices the establishment would rather silence. I really appreciate you guys joining us today. If you support this series, which we've been publishing and broadcasting a weekly live stream pretty much every single week, um, you can support us on our Patreon page and help us with beating uh, social media big tech censorship by sharing this live stream on your pages. Today, we are joined by a very special guest. Many of you may already know her. Her name is Rania Khalik. Rania, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be on with you, Manar. Thank you. So you're a journalist for Breakthrough News and co-host of the Unauthorized Disclosure podcast, and you are now living in Lebanon, which is under U.S. sanctions and experiencing an economic crisis. It's an honor to have you here, uh, Rania, with us. I want to talk about Lebanon because I think it's so important to discuss just the ramifications of how U.S. sanctions can truly affect a nation that is on the brink of an economic crisis. I mean, is it on the brink or is it in um, an economic crisis? Explain it to us. Lebanon has been collapsing economically since uh, 2019. So it just keeps falling and falling and it hasn't hit the floor yet. Um, And it's going to keep getting worse. And it's pretty bad already. Uh, And you mentioned sanctions, and I'm glad you did, because oftentimes the way that the crisis in Lebanon is portrayed is as if it it was its own doing, right? It's just a matter of, you know, uh, mismanagement and deep corruption um, and, you know, a political elite that just won't let go of power. And these are these, these, these things are true about Lebanon, for sure. Lebanon has a very dysfunctional political system and it is under the control of essentially an oligarchy. Um, the oligarchs are basically the former warlords who fought the civil war back, you know, in 1975 to 1990. But that's not the entire story. What's left out of that very incomplete picture is that Lebanon is also suffering from conditions that have been created in the region by U.S. imperialism. And what I mean by that is, you know, Lebanon is a tiny country that borders Syria, it borders Israel to its south, and then it borders, you know, the Mediterranean Sea. Um, It's a small country of about 6 million people, including a lot of refugees. And its entire economic system was set up by America's allies in the country and blessed by America's allies in the country. It ultimately was this Ponzi scheme economy that was inevitably going to crash. It just took 30 years. And now that it has crashed, Lebanon's in a situation where it's kind of under this sort of unofficial siege. And what I mean by that is, you know, it has Syria on one side that is uh, under U.S. sanctions, under the Caesar Act of the U.S., which actually it's not just sanctioning Syria. It prevents other countries from doing trade with Syria. So if a country like Lebanon, which literally is Syria's neighbor, trades with Syria, Lebanon will be subject to secondary U.S. sanctions, and it can't afford to do that right now. So that's one trading partner that's cut off. I mean, Syria, Lebanon used to get I think 10 to 15 percent of its uh, power needs, its electricity needs from Syria. And it can no longer do that because if it buys power from Syria, it'll be subject to U.S. sanctions. And then, of course, to the south is Israel is occupied Palestine. And Lebanon doesn't trade with Israel for obvious reasons. Israel is an official enemy state that's that's launched several wars against uh, Lebanon and continues to bomb Lebanon with, you know, routinely. uh, And, you know, that's not talking about every day that it violates Lebanese airspace with its fighter jets and its drones. So that's off the table. Lebanon can't trade with Israel. And then you have the port, 
the Beirut port, which, right. you know, today uh, yesterday was the one year anniversary of the Beirut port explosion, um, which destroyed Lebanon's most you know, it's largest and most important port. Um, and as a result, you know, Lebanon is an import dependent country. It produces almost nothing except for banks, which have all failed. Um, so it's dependent on importing things into the country. And so now there's all these shortages. There's medicine shortages. There's fuel shortages. The country, you know, I'm in the capital and Beirut is experiencing up to 22 hour a day blackouts. And so everyone's dependent on generators. You know, the reason I have electricity right now is because I have a building generator, but even that, you know, we're starting to have to ration because we can't find fuel for the generator. So it's, you know, snowballing into a bigger and bigger crisis because of Lebanon's economic collapse. But, you know, and these are the, the sanctions in the region, um, not just in Syria, also the sanctions on Iran impact Lebanon. Lebanon is desperate for fuel, but it lacks the dollars to purchase it. So Iran actually offered to sell Lebanon fuel in Lebanese currency, which is essentially like giving it to Lebanon for free because Lebanese currency is so worthless right now. Uh, and despite how desperately Lebanon needs that fuel, the half of the political class that hates Iran and is in pro U and is pro U.S., you know, said absolutely not, because if we do this, we'll be subject to sanctions. So Lebanon can't even get oil from Iran, uh, which is not that far away. It can't get power from Syria. It has a dollar shortage, dollar shortage and can't buy fuel. And then all these outside powers that sustained Lebanon's economy for so long because they were hoping that the pro-Saudi, pro-U.S. politicians could uh, take power away from Hezbollah. Because that never happened, they're now just kind of letting Lebanon fall because they figure, you know what, it's a lost cause. Hezbollah is going to be in charge. They're going to maintain support and popularity in that country. Just let it fall. And so and then that's not even to mention, you know, the sanctions that actually are on Lebanon. Lebanon does have sanctions on it, particular individuals, anything affiliated with Hezbollah is sanctioned, despite the fact that Hezbollah is a political party in Lebanon that is voted democratically into parliament and is a part of Lebanon's um, majority coalition. The head of the Lebanese uh, party, the Free Patriotic Movement, uh, Jabram Basile, was recently sanctioned by the Americans. Uh, you know, they say it's for corruption, which there probably is corruption involved. He's a rich guy. He's a part of a rich family. His family's benefited from the uh, economic structure in Lebanon, but so is every other political party and, and all their oligarchs as well. I mean, there's nothing special about this guy that he's more corrupt than, say, Saad Hariri. Uh, but he's being sanctioned because his party, the biggest Christian party in Lebanon, is allied with Hezbollah. Hezbollah. And that, you know, exactly. So that it goes, it always goes back to Hezbollah and trying to weaken Hezbollah. Uh, and so sanctions on, even if you don't sanction a country entirely, maybe the way ha the US has sanctioned Syria. If you sanction people who are in power, you sanction a political party that's in power, you're essentially scaring international investors away from the country. So even before this economic crisis, there was it was actually difficult to to do banking between Western banks and Lebanese banks because of all the scrutiny, because of Hezbollah and because of U.S. sanctions and just this constant fear you know, no company wants to be subjected to financial penalties from U.S. sanctions. So if you sanction a few individuals, it actually ultimately does impact the country's ability to attract investors and to just buy things on the international market. So let's talk about the power structure in Lebanon, because I think it's so important. I mean, what you just did is describe kind of this overarching crisis, right, that's taking place in Lebanon. But it's so important for like the average American audience to understand the power dynamics, the structure there. The country is really divided in terms of politics. 
um, and political affiliations. You have the oligarchs, right, who are very much affiliated with, um, you know, Western imperialism. Uh, they're allied with the United States. They're allied with Saudi Arabia. I mean, their politicians are flying back and forth to Saudi Arabia anytime there's like a crisis in Lebanon to escape any sort of like prosecution, right? Mm -hmm. But then when we hear about Lebanon in crisis in the West, it's the finger is always pointed to Hezbollah, the political party from the South, mm -hmm. right? And so yeah. explain to me kind of the power structure and dynamics that's taking play here and who really is at fault for the current economic crisis. So Lebanon is a really complicated place. It's a small country, yeah. so you'd think it would be simple, but it's not. Um, and it, the reason is this 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 political structure that was put into place after the Civil War. Um, the Civil War ended in 1991. And when the Civil War ended, what ended them was something called the Taif Accords, which basically distributed power among different sects. The idea was to have representation among all the sects to prevent sectarianism. But of course, the opposite ends up happening. So you have the situation in Lebanon where the president has to be a Maronite Christian, the uh, prime minister has to be Sunni, and the speaker of parliament has to be uh, Shia. Uh, and so the, that and that that uh, that kind of distribution that that imposed distribution is is reinforced throughout every structure in Lebanon, where this person has to be this, this thing, like, everyone's allotted something. But what that has done is it's, it's reinforced clientelism in Lebanon, and it's actually reinforced sectarianism in Lebanon. But that's not actually the main problem in Lebanon. I mean, sectarianism in Lebanon is an issue and having a sectarian system is a problem. But ultimately, it's the neoliberal economic order that came with that structure. And that economic order, that Ponzi scheme economy, was created, was architected by two individuals in particular, by a guy called Riyad Salemi, who's been the head of the central bank, and um, and he's been a very close ally of the State Department, um, and has played a huge role in kind of making sure that U.S. sanctions are imposed and even go further than they need to, um, but very close to the State Department. And then there's a guy called that was called Rafiq Hariri, who was killed, and now his son has taken over his place as the head of the future party, which is essentially a Saudi, a Saudi backed U.S. backed party. And when I say backed, I, I, I actually doesn't really describe it well enough. It's a party where literally all of its PR was done by America. <laughs> all of its PR was paid for, like by Saudi Arabia. Saad Hadidi is a Saudi citizen. Um, Sometimes, you know, I wonder if like they're holding his family hostage or something because of how much sway they have over him. They actually kidnapped him a few years ago and forced him to resign as prime minister. But anyways, the Hariri clan, which made a ton of money off of Lebanese, off of real estate after the Civil War, billions of dollars uh, and benefited from the system as well as Riyad Salami architected this system and they continue to benefit through, from this system and they continue to be backed and, and bailed out every time the system almost collapsed by the U.S. government, by Saudi Arabia and their allies for the last 30 years because they were seen as like being necessary to be an alternative to Hezbollah, to be the pro-U.S. bloc. Um, and the system, this is a very neoliberal system in Lebanon where it's, you know, it. when I say it had the blessing of the West, I mean that this guy, Riyad Salami, head of the central bank, even as he was doing this so-called financial engineering to keep the Lebanese system afloat, which was constantly dependent on outside deposits coming into the country to keep funding the economy. Literally, commercial banks, depositors' money in commercial banks in Lebanon was being used 
by the central bank to fund the country's imports, which is actually like unheard of. You don't, that's not usually how an economy functions. But as a result, the functioning of the country, the ability of the country to import fuel and import medicine and pay for these things in U.S. dollars was dependent on a constant inflow of people depositing their money into commercial banks. And the way they kept this inflow coming in was to offer higher and higher interest rates until it just became too high for people to believe it anymore. Um, but these are the these are the guys who architected this system. And until a few years ago, Riyad Salemi was getting prizes uh, at international banking conferences by international institutions. The World Bank loved him. The IMF loved him. The people at Davos loved him, right? They were like, this man's a magician. You know, Lebanon was able, under his rule of the central bank, was able to uh, withstand the 2008 global financial collapse that the U.S. caused, and it wasn't hurt by it. And so everyone thought he was like a wizard or something. And they were like bowing down to him. I mean, he's a guy who comes out of Merrill Lynch, um, that's where he was working before he came to head the, the U.S., the Lebanese Central Bank. And so despite the fact that the economy crashed because of this Ponzi scheme created by these powers that are totally tied up with America and its financial institutions and imperialism, somehow the Western media manages to blame Hezbollah. Hezbollah doesn't even have a stake in the Lebanese banking system because they've been under sanction. They've had to always operate outside of it. So even if they wanted to be a part of this system, this very corrupt banking system, they couldn't because sanctions literally prevented them from doing international banking. And so it's it's just so absurd that the U.S. is blaming Hezbollah and that Western media blames Hezbollah or Iran because the parties at fault for Lebanon's financial collapse are America's biggest tools in Lebanon. And it's always, I mean, looking at any neoliberal system, it always goes back to uh, the real estate moguls and the big banksters. And that's really Mm -hmm. what's happening in uh, Lebanon. But let's talk about how the people are coping. I mean, clearly the 1% class in Lebanon is lavishing with, you know, living a very lavish lifestyle while the people are truly suffering. I mean, I have friends, I have some family that live in Lebanon and they're really suffering right now um, from the, from the electrical blackouts. Um, I mean, 12 hours a day or more with no electricity. And how are you surviving, Rania? All of this. Well, so actually like I, I was largely, um, I can hear myself echoing. I don't know if you can hear it. Or, okay. Well, um, I mean, I've been largely able to, uh, sorry, I'm trying to, okay. Now I'm not echoing, echoing. I can't hear myself think I, um, I've, I've been largely immune from the blackouts until the last couple of weeks because I have a building generator. That's really good. So like in Lebanon, how you're doing with the electricity depends largely on what building you live in and whether your building has a good generator and was prepared to have a generator on. I mean, generators aren't really built to be on all day, um, but that's what's been happening in Lebanon. So basically every building has been dependent on either its generator or like a neighborhood generator. Villages have been dependent on village generators. Uh and Lebanon has never had 24-hour state electricity uh, since the end of the war, since before, because it's just never been able to build the infrastructure for it. There's a lot, a lot of cor- corruption is partly the reason for that, because a lot of money has been put into the electricity sector, yet despite that, the infrastructure still isn't there. But also Israel has bombed Lebanon's power stations repeatedly over and over and over, over the last decades. Uh, But that's actually not why there's no electricity right now. Like everybody wants to blame the bad power infrastructure. Lebanon's always had bad power infrastructure. What's happening right now is a result of the fuel shortages. 
So even like I said, I was largely immune from the state power cuts because I have a good building generator, but now we can't find fuel for the generator. So we started to ration the generator. That's what a lot of people are doing. They're rationing the fuel they use to power the generator. So they're, you know, people who were able to make up for the lack of state electricity with their generator are now going eight hours, 12 hours, more and more of the day without electricity because there's no fuel that's being hoarded. And also not, you know, there's a shortage because the country can't afford to import it because it lacks dollars. And like the situation I mentioned before. So people, it's really hot right now. Today, yeah. You know, today was, there's a heat wave right now. There's also forest fires as a, there's wildfires as a result. Lebanon has wildfires much like we do in California. And the fuel shortage is actually making it difficult to put the wildfires out because you need fuel shortages to get the fire trucks, to get the helicopters running, all the things that you need to put out these wildfires. It's affecting water pumping. Water pumping stations rely on fuel. I mean, people really don't realize how much every activity you do every part of the day is so reliant on oil, is so reliant on some dirty fuel source um, until you're desperate for it, until you don't have it, until every second you, every hour that you have electricity to turn on your light and turn on an AC when there's a heat wave, you know, then you really start to notice. But it's that the water pumping is going to become an issue for most like 70 to 80% of the country is at risk of not having access to like water to bathe and shower with and stuff like that to clean with uh, because the water pumping stations need fuel and they're relying on generators and they can't find diesel. You also have the situation with agriculture. Um, think about chicken, you know, think about poultry. You need to keep it refrigerated. That's becoming a problem. People are starting to get food poisoning because things aren't able to stay refrigerated properly because refrigeration relies on what? electricity, which needs fuel. Um, it's one thing after another, after another, that's the electricity, the fuel issue. Then there's the issue of medicines, right? The country needs medicines, but it has, doesn't have dollars to import them. There's hoarding of medications by the pharmaceutical cartel. There's like a cartel for everything in this country. So for the last several months, people can't get blood pressure medications. They can't cholesterol medications. And then you repeat, you know, those are things you can maybe go out, go without, without immediate repercussions. Like if you stop taking your blood pressure medication, it's a problem in the long term. Um, it's a very big problem, but you don't see the the long-term impact or you don't see the long-term impacts of it right, right away. But then there's people who have cancer and they can't get their medicine, right? They, they rely on medications that keep them alive. Uh, there's people who have breathing machines that like they, you know, can't, can't recharge at their homes because they're, they don't have a generator. They're not getting electricity all day. It's just on and on and on and on. It's, it's really terrible what's happening right now. It's affecting businesses. You know, you can't keep your restaurant open if you can't refrigerate the food. Um, and if you don't have power, who's going to come to your restaurant in the middle of the summer when it's 95 degrees outside and humid outside and you don't have any AC, you know? And, and, so, our, and our kids going to school, I guess it's summer break. They're not going, they're not going to be going to school anytime soon from this crisis, right? Well, so yeah, kids were already weren't going to school because of COVID, you know, unlike in the U.S., people don't have as much access to vaccines, though there have been a good number of people vaccinated, interestingly enough, in Lebanon, uh, but not like in the U.S. And so there's, I think the plan for this for September is for schools to remain virtual, but then you also have a problem of how do you go to school virtually yeah. if you don't have electricity? Right, right, um, right. And that was a problem earlier in the year, but the electricity cuts were not as bad as once the summer started. And part of that is because the summer does put more pressure on the system. You know, people use a, they need ACs. There's more that you turn on, um, but that's going to be an issue. You know, I have a lot of friends who are teachers. The other issue in Lebanon, you know, speaking of education is Lebanon had one of the best, you know, private 
educational institutions in the region. A lot of people came from other countries to send their kids to school in Lebanon. Part of that was because the teachers, they had really well-paid teachers with degrees from like America and degrees from Europe. But those people have all left because they're uh, salaries are not keeping up with inflation. So there's, even from the private schools, teachers have been leaving in droves. Um, so the education system is definitely going to suffer from a lack of teachers in this country. I mean, these are the problems that are piling up in Lebanon are going to have consequences for decades to come. It's like going to destroy a generation. Well, and right now people are being forced into their homes where there's no, you know, access to like, proper food. There's no access to uh, air conditioning or anything like that. So um, from my understanding, security forces are attacking people who are getting out on the street uh, to protest these measures. Well, so I actually don't think, I don't really have that view of the security forces in Lebanon. Like everybody likes to make a big deal every time the security forces in Lebanon fire a tear gas canister. But maybe this is because I'm American and I've seen what brutal police look like. You just don't have that same thing in Lebanon. Like you just don't. I mean, security forces everywhere act like jerks when there's a protest. But I have to say, uh, like people at Lebanon throw ro- like do things. Like, if you did the things that people in Lebanon do to security forces, and I'm talking about throwing punches, throwing rocks, throwing sticks, you'd get shot in the U.S. So it's not it's not as I mean, you might see a video that goes viral like Lebanese. Look what the Lebanese police did, you know, but. Like it's, it's not as Lebanon's a difficult place to understand when it comes to protest, because there's also so many political parties involved who like, and they're also fighting each other. So like, there's like every political party has its thugs. Every political party has its thugs. There's already political upheaval on top of what's happening. Right. Right. Crisis. Yeah. 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 There's all this. Well, so like yesterday there was the, was the one year anniversary of the port explosion. And so people went out to protest and they were, there was people at the parliament. They started throwing sticks and rocks at like the security forces at the parliament. And I mean, this is the equivalent of like, you know, imagine what police would do if you did that. To, well, actually, we know what police would do if you did that to Congress. They might fire at you because um, we saw that happen. But uh, there was also political parties like like fighting each other on the street yesterday. Like there was the Lebanese forces party, which is a right wing, like fascistic party. That's fully backed by the U S it's like a U.S. stooge party. They committed some of the most horrific massacres during the Lebanese civil war. And yesterday they attacked a group of communists from the Lebanese communist party uh, in a neighborhood in their neighbor, in, in a Lebanese forces dominated neighborhood near the, uh, port near the downtown area near the port. Uh, and they attacked them really viciously and like forced them to step on their kafiyas and curse Hezbollah and curse their own party. And they sent people to the hospital. They fired gunshots. Like people got shot yesterday uh, with this uh, firefight provoked by the Lebanese forces. So like this is happening at the same time as people are protesting over the port explosion. You have other political parties with their thugs on the street throwing rocks at security forces. So Lebanon's a little bit more complicated than just people protesting and security forces were like mean to them. There's a lot more happening. And that's why Lebanon is so ripe for, for like co-optation and for interference in protest movements in Lebanon. Every time there's a mass protest movement in Lebanon, like the various U.S. backed groups get involved, the different political parties get involved and they try and, you know, weaponize it to go their way. And so that's what happened in 2019. And that's why that protest movement largely went, didn't go anywhere because it was really hijacked by 
right-wing political parties in Lebanon uh, against Hezbollah, like within like three or four days, like Lebanese forces was making it their protest, you know, um, but pretending that they weren't Lebanese forces, like this always happens. So the same thing is happening with the port blast. The port blast has been completely politicized. It happened, you know, it was a fault of the entire government. It was the fault of a, an incompetent and neg criminally negligent, intentionally weak government. I mean, Lebanon has an intentionally weak government, so it can stay an intention. It can be a weak country. Um, and as a result of that weak governing apparatus, you have that level of incompetence, bureaucratic negligence that led to the port explosion. Uh, but somehow the port explosion is again, Try, they're trying to politicize it against Hezbollah um, and trying to politicize it against Hezbollah's allies. And so the, the the blame is not being distributed equally. And there's a lot of people getting off the hook over this, at least in the public, because of the campaign to try to make this about Hezbollah when it's about something that goes beyond Hezbollah. Um, and that's what happened yesterday. I mean, yesterday you had people protesting rightfully because they were angry because there's been no accountability you also had people protesting, chanting Hezbollah as a terrorist group and saying curse words about Nasrallah and then beating up Lebanese communists. So, like, it's just it's it's, it's always a mess in Lebanon. <laughs> I was about to ask, so how has the, com the country uh, recovered since the Beirut explosion? I don't think it's recovered at all. So, you know, the area that was... Um, it depends which area, like there's an area, the areas that were hit, some of them have were rebuilt in a couple months, um, by a lot of European money. Uh, in particular, like there's a neighborhood called Marab Khayel in Beirut, which is like right next to the port and was completely destroyed. It's also like a, it's a very Christian neighborhood and the French feel like very close to it. So the French helped fund in the French are the former colonial masters of Lebanon. They tried to make it a Christian country. So they have a very close relationship. They feel like responsible for Lebanese Christians. So they rebuilt they, their money, rebuilt a lot of uh, Marab Khayel. Like I remember I left after the port exploded. I came back like three or four months later and every single bar and restaurant in Manamchayel was rebuilt like it was brand new. But then there are other places that are still destroyed and nothing's been done to fix them, particularly poor neighborhoods like Carantina, another neighborhood near the port uh, that's still like in ruins and nothing's been fixed. So it depends where and much like the port explosion was random, the reconstruction has been seemingly random. Um, not everybody's been, been rebuilt. And of course, most importantly, like nobody's have been held accountable for a completely preventable industrial disaster uh, that killed over 200 people. Um, I mean, there was a bunch of really explosive material just sitting at the port for six years. Well, uh, I mean, when the explosion happened, there were so many like theories that were spiraling out of control. What was this blast caused by? So, I mean, there's, of course, because there's always so much interference in Lebanon and because everything that happens in Lebanon is so politicized, depending on who you ask, they will have a different theory. Like the there's people who, um, you know, think it was Israel. Um, right. There's people who think Israel dropped the bomb. I mean, I don't I haven't seen any evidence that anybody dropped the bomb. Uh, it seems like a fire start. What, what likely looks like happened is a fire started and there was this highly explosive material that was reports warning about this material and how flammable it was and how it was a disaster waiting to happen. There are shady questions that haven't, there are questions about this that make it shady that haven't been answered. I mean, this, this like 2000 some odd tons of ammonium nitrate was, which is a fertilizer. That's also, that also can be used to make explosives. It was on this like Russian owned 
sh- or this ru- the, uh, a ship owned by some Russian businessman that was apparently on its way to Mozambique. Right. That sounds shady. Like what what was happening there? Why did it get stopped in Lebanon? Um, There are theories like there's people, another politicized theory that the pro-U.S., pro-Saudi political class has tried to push and their oligarchic media mouthpieces have pushed is the idea that this was being imported to Syria for the Syrian government to use against rebels. This there's like no truth to this because Syria produces ammonium nitrate for agriculture. It's, it's a fertilizer used in agriculture. They, If they wanted to use it in explosives, they would not need to import it for, through the Beirut port. Um, they can make it themselves. They manufacture their own. There's like a paper trail showing they manufacture their own. There is another theory that I think actually is plausible that I've heard in some security circles uh, discussed, though it hasn't really been given any public hearing or looked into properly is that the rebel groups in Syria, this, you know, collection patchwork of Al Qaeda linked uh, uh, jihadist groups that the U S and its allies in the region were arming and funding uh, that this was being distributed to them by their local Lebanese partners. Um, You know, the future party had people who were uh, funneling weapons to the rebels in Syria. We know this. This isn't controversial. It's been reported on even in the mainstream. So it's plausible that that's where it was going, uh, that the political class in Lebanon allied with those jihadist groups might have been smuggling it to them uh, to use in explosives. And I mean, this is a fertilizer. This kind of fertilizer is typically used by non-state groups who don't have access to conventional weapons. That's who would use it to make explosives. I think that's plausible. I can't prove it. It's pure <laughs> speculation. Yeah, it's not out of the question. I mean, considering the rebels in Syria, like Al Nusra Front, have you know they've been studied that they they create a lot of the weapons themselves. They create yeah. chemical weapons themselves to wreak havoc in Syria. I mean, this is something Mitt Press has reported on. You've reported on this fact as well. MIT researchers and scientists literally teach a class about how Al Nusra Front is manufacturing their own weaponry yeah. and chemical weapons using these kinds of fertilizers. Right. So it's, I think this is a totally plausible scenario that may have played out. And there's also the, right. an, an interesting fact that was revealed by, inter, by an FBI investigation that the Lebanese authorities agreed with the results of, which is that only some only 500 something tons of this explosive material actually exploded. So the question becomes what happened to the other 1700 tons? Right. Um, so but I, I mean, we can't answer these questions till there's a proper investigation, but everything's just too politicized. that I don't think we'll ever get to the bottom of it, maybe until decades later. I really don't like I don't think that's you're going to see any answers. I don't think anyone's going to be held accountable, um, which is like typically what happens here is no one's held accountable. But at the end of the day, you know, um, the end of the day, Lebanon right now is suffering to such a tremendous degree and it needs help. And all of these governments are like they're doing the Western governments are doing two things. They're saying, we're not going to give you, we're not going to help you until you make these reforms, reforms that are totally impossible in the system Lebanon has right now, like reforms against corruption and stuff. It's just never going to happen. You have a political, like this political system here is structured to never have those reforms. So unless you change that system, you'll never get those reforms. So, okay, Lebanon's not going to get any help from the West. The other option is Lebanon could turn to Russia and China, turn eastward, do business with Iran. Iran, but Lebanon has a political class that is split where the pro-U.S., pro-Saudi side, specifically the pro-U.S. side, is preventing that. The U.S. has actually prevented uh, any sort of Chinese investment in Lebanon. 
Um, I know that for a fact that was happening under the Trump administration. Um, the U.S. even under the Trump administration prevented Qatar from helping Lebanon. Biden's not doing that anymore. But there is an attempt to use this economic crisis to try to further weaken Hezbollah. Um, it's not working. You're not going to weaken Hezbollah because Hezbollah has a base of support in Lebanon because they in their community, they are seen as being a force of protection. They've protected the Lebanese South and Shias in the South against Israeli occupation, who they kicked out of Southern Lebanon. I think the only group in the region that successfully used armed resistance against Israel to end their occupation. Um, and they also, after that, they continued to protect the Southern border from Israel, but they also protect the country, protected the country from ISIS and Al Qaeda in Syria, which tried to, which did invade Lebanon. I mean, nobody talks about this, but ISIS came, ISIS and Al Qaeda came into Lebanon. And the only reason they did not successfully take over areas of Lebanon the way they took over areas of Syria is because of Hezbollah. And of course, the Lebanese army helped. But let's be real here. Hezbollah is the actual stronger party. Um, and that terrifies the U.S. because Hezbollah is a total obstruction. It's a it's a huge obstacle to U.S. hegemony in this region. They put a huge wrench into U.S. plans in this region. And that can't be tolerated. And we know what happens when anybody stands up and refuses to submit to American and Israeli dictates in this region is they are crushed with every imaginable tool. And right now, the tool that's being used against them is an economic one, just like the same tools being used against Syria, just like that same economic tool of financial terrorism is being used against Iran. And you know, ISIS for so long, when they were uh, united with Al-Nusra Front and other uh, jihadi groups, when they were operating in Iraq under one umbrella to create the caliphate, you know, across the, the Middle East, I mean, they had announced from the very beginning that their target was to get to Hezbollah. And mm -hmm. so this obviously fulfills uh, Israeli and U.S. interests in the region. And so that's why Hezbollah has been punished so severely when it got involved in the war in Syria uh, because it got involved, uh, not just to help Syria, you know, with this invasion by these uh, jihadi groups, but to also prevent them from entering Lebanon, because that's where they were headed towards. It made it very, that's very clear that their main enemy was Hezbollah. It was, I mean, uh, it was Menard, all it's, it's the same reason, it's the same reason Iran got involved in Syria. I mean, of course, Syria is their ally, and that's one aspect of it. But it's the main reason Iran got involved in Syria, because it, it, this was a, an existential threat to their own national security. And Hezbollah, as much as everyone wants to think Hezbollah is some proxy of Iran, Hezbollah is a Lebanese group with Lebanese domestic concerns, and it views itself as protecting Lebanon's territorial integrity and Lebanon's national security. So you're exactly right. This was viewed, and rightly so, was viewed as a huge threat to Lebanon, a huge threat. And it, had it not been for Hezbollah, you know, who knows how far these groups would have gotten into Lebanon. And it's, you know, the irony, of course, is that uh, the parties that despise Hezbollah so much, you know, I think they would have been singing a different tune had they had to live under the black flag of ISIS. Yes, exactly. I mean, who who knows what Syria would have turned into um, if these groups had had successfully taken over, but they didn't. Luckily, they didn't. And sovereignty in Syria, a little bit of sovereignty was <laughs> restored. Oh, um, but yeah. I want to just wrap up about Lebanon very quickly. You know, you mentioned this at the very beginning about how 
Um, I forgot his name, the guy heading the central bank in, in Lebanon. Riyad Salemi. Riyad Salemi. So Riyad Salemi, when he, you know, he is like this dream guy for the IMF and the World Bank. How does this economic crisis benefit um, the IMF and the World Bank? You know, interestingly enough, um, I, I this isn't your typical third world country in debt kind of economic crisis where they're coming in to try to privatize everything because there's nothing, there's not much left to privatize or to vulture off of Lebanon was such a, like a, a paradise for the international capitalist class. It's like just a corpse, a starved corpse at this point, there's nothing left to take from it's, it's purely political. So it's not so much at the IMF and world bank, have anything to benefit off of so much as it's like an American imperialism kind of situation where America and Israel and their allies, Saudi Arabia can try to benefit off of this economic collapse of Lebanon. That said, they don't want Lebanon to collapse completely because they also recognize that if Lebanon had a full on collapse, Hezbollah would just be in charge of the country because they'd be the only people able to like instill impose any sort of order. So they're kind of keeping Lebanon on life support, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's, like, it's like on the brink, but not totally collapsed because exactly. when it's on the brink, people can continue to fight each other too, which, exactly. which, is, which is what you also described is that there's a lot of, you know, sectarianism is growing. Uh, political parties are fighting each other rather than pointing their fingers at the right uh, groups who are actually uh, creating the crisis in the first place. So let's talk about Syria. Syria is a victim of major U.S. economic sanctions. I mean, they have been, Syria has been the victim of a brutal proxy war by countries like Turkey, Qatar, Israel, Saudi Arabia, who've been arming, uh, and the United States, of course, from the Pentagon to the State Department, um, arming these jihadi groups, these so-called, you know, moderate rebels, who have destroyed the country, who have pushed sectarianism. And Syria has been really struggling to rebuild because they're um, targeted with U.S. economic sanctions and uh, they can barely even bring medicine into the country as as the world is suffering under this pandemic. Describe, Rania, what is taking place in terms of like economic sanctions when it comes to Syria? Like, What is the impact that we're seeing here? Well, so, you know, it's way worse than Lebanon in, te- in terms of the devaluation of the local currency um, is dramatically worse than Lebanon. Syrian currency is like worthless at this point. Uh, the country can't afford to import anything. Uh, it's essential needs. And there's also something that should be mentioned about Syria. It's been balkanized um, and it's been balkanized in such a way that actually hurts Syrians economically even more because, you know, the north of Syria is under the control of jihadist groups that are allied with Turkey or the Turkish military itself, right? In places around like places like Afrin. And then of course, Idlib right under the control of Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, which is headed by Mohammed al-Jalani, the former head of al-Nusra, which was al-Qaeda in Syria. Um, So Idlib is kind of like, doesn't, it's almost like it doesn't belong to Syria anymore. They don't even use Syrian currency there. They use Turkish currency in Idlib. Um, And and they actually have better electricity in Idlib, thanks to Turkey, uh, than the Syrian government areas do. Um, and then you have the Northeast, which is under the control of the Syrian Democratic Forces, overseen by, I think, something like 900 or so American military yeah, personnel. Yeah, U.S. soldiers. Who basically occupy oil fields. Like, they occupy this oil field, um, out the uh, Al-Omar oil field in Deir Zor, for example. Um, and that's, I mean, so Trump said it as honestly as you'll ever hear. He said they're there to protect the oil. Now, 
the northeast of Syria, where the SDF, which is basically just the Syrian, the YPG, which is the Syrian Kurdish. branch of the PKK, which yeah. is a Kurdish like cult. You could call it, it's like a cult. I mean, everybody calls it some glorious leftist group, but it's basically a cult around one man a cult of personality around this man, Ajalan, who's in prison in Turkey. But the Syrian, and it's what's funny about the Syrian YPG is one of the reasons it even exists is because of Assad, which is another story. <laughs> like, uh, it was kind of like allowed. Everybody likes to portray the YPG as like, they want regime change, but they don't. And they've never actually fought the regime that hasn't been there. That was never their goal. Um, but anyways, the U.S. armed them and basically gave them like gave them the arms and weapons to defeat ISIS in these areas in the Northeast. And now that that fight is over, they basically just taken over this area. So this area is under the control of the YPG, the SDF, whatever you want to call it. Thanks to the Americans. And they, now that they have some land and power, they don't want to give it back. Well, they, um, they ethnically cleanse the region, that area, actually. Yeah. Of the area is not majority Kurdish. It's not majority Kurdish. Actually, still isn't majority Kurdish. They have ethnically cleansed some neighborhoods of, like, Arabs and Assyrians who live there. Um, and it's just, I mean, the entire American left, that's not the entire, but the part, the portion of the American left that's, like, obsessed with this group is really has some blinders on about what's actually taking place in this area. But what more importantly, the land that they have in the Northeast is Syria's most fertile land. It is where 70% of Syria's wheat is grown in this area under the under the control of the SDF and the Americans. It's also the area where all the oil fields are. So Syria, at a time of economic destruction from U.S. sanctions that had made it impossible to import fuel or to import anything and have also devalued the currency, making it even more difficult to buy things on the international market, even if you can get around sanctions is now being denied its own oil and its own wheat and has to buy it back from the SDF. It has to Syria has to purchase its own oil with money it doesn't have. So some a lot of times the SDF just says no because Syria can't pay for it. So that's like the balkanization of Syria here is denying it access to its own resources as people the majority of Syrians who live in government controlled areas are suffering from day like blackouts all day they don't have electricity you know except for a couple hours here and there they don't have access to medications i mean what people say now is that a lebanese ambulance has more equipment than a syrian hospital syria used to have one of the best healthcare systems in the middle east and it was free and now now like it's a disaster People can't get cancer treatment. They can't get dialysis. They can't get things that were easily available 10 years ago before this regime change destruction started. Um, and so you want to, you know, everybody likes to talk about, oh, the Syrians bomb hospitals, the Russians bomb hospitals. You should see what American policy has done to Syria's hospitals, to some of the best healthcare that used to exist in the Middle East, just completely wiped out. Because you know what sanctions do? The U.S. loves to say that sanctions have um, exceptions, you know, have medical exceptions and humanitarian exceptions. But guess what? When you have a dialysis machine, you need to maintain it. You need to do maintenance on it, right? Sometimes it breaks down because it needs a replacement part. And unless you as a sanctioned country have factories producing locally producing dialysis machines, you're reliant on the international companies that make those machines. Usually they're European companies or American companies who might get the parts from China, but they make them, you know, they make them in their countries. Like you need an American part to make your dialysis machine work. 
If you're under sanction, you can't get that part. And apply that logic to everything from medical equipment to trucks to transport food. Those truck engines break down or you need a spare part, you're screwed because you can't import it. Um, and that's even if you have fuel for the truck. I mean, Syrians have to wait in these long lines, in these long queues to get gasoline and to get bread. And again, this is a country that used to be very well off. We're now 80 to 90 percent of its population is living in severe poverty. You know, and you've got malnutrition developing. You've got it's just a complete disaster and it's totally preventable. It's, it's all man-made. America. It sounds exactly like what took place in Libya before the U.S. invasion. I mean, Libya had the highest like <laughs> lifestyle of living. It was in Libya. Free health care, literacy rates were so low. People were very healthy, living a, a much better lifestyle. And now like slaves are being uh, you know, bought and sold on the streets of Libya after the United States invaded there um, and continued and their it's so infuriating because not that this is okay to do to any society, but what the, the what the U.S. has done with its neoconservative foreign policy for the last thirty years, it, it has it has gone, it has gone on a it's on a mission successfully to shatter some of the most ancient places in the world. I mean, Baghdad, Damascus, these are Aleppo. These are some of the oldest cities in the world, and they are in ruins now. Well, Damascus well, isn't in ruins, but that's a colonial tactic of control mm -hmm. and erasure of, you know, these ancient cities in history. Um, yeah. So that these countries, when they do rebuild, they rely so heavily on American corporations or Western corporations or European corporations. And then everything is rebuilt, um, you know, in an American Western way. It's all about globalization, right? That's, I mean, that's, yeah. the, it's all globalization from there. Um, you know, <laughs> you know, I was going to ask you about how the United States is occupying one third of Syria's land. <laughs> talk a little bit about that, but let's talk a little bit more about the resources that they are um, occupying. I mean, most people think that the United States, like people think that the war in Syria is over, but it's like not, it's far from over. It's far from over. The United States is occupying one third of Syria's landmass. And that landmass is the most fertile where they have the most access to water, uh, gas, and oil. Talk to, me about the, talk to me about the U.S. military presence in this area. If they literally just occupy oil fields and they also prevent, they, they're at the border between Syria and Iraq in an effort to basically prevent any trade coming from Iraq to the Syrian government. Or they, they like have this belief that there's like a land bridge from Tehran to Beirut, a Shia land bridge. This is literally yeah. the language of the American government has used. I mean, some of the most jihadist talking points I've ever heard have come from like American lobbyists on K Street uh, against the Shia land bridge from Tehran to Beirut. But they're obsessed with this idea of the resistance axis, um, which actually their policies have helped create. Um, there wouldn't be a resistance axis without American imperialism in the region. Exactly. It's a response to American imperialism. Exactly. Uh, and so um, they're, they they obviously they occupy these oil fields, um, although I think that Biden like put a pause on the American company that was profiting from selling that oil. I don't know how if that's actually gone through or not. I saw like a headline about it. So I have to follow up and see if that actually happened. But there was a, an American company like based in Delaware that was like profiting off of this the sale of this oil that the Americans are stealing from Syria. But it also, this is bigger than just Syria though, because, you know, the Middle East, if you think about 
if you think about what the biggest threat in the Middle East would be, it would be an in a region that was strong enough to maintain independence from U.S. interests. And a region that's strong would have to be unified, right? And so part of the plan across this region isn't just to balkanize Syria. It's essentially balkanizing the whole region, which is a project that has been taking place since the British and French chopped up the Middle East and split the spoils amongst themselves after the fall of the Ottoman Empire after World War One, And so, you know, you had Iraq and, and, and Palestine were claimed by the British, Syria and Lebanon were claimed by the uh, French and, and Jordan by the British as well. And since then, every single policy of the West, and this continued after the Americans took over from the imperial position of the French and the British, Every single policy in this region has been to make sure that it stays fractured. And that's been done by promoting sectarianism, by promoting right wing groups, by promoting and by and by cutting up the region, imposing these colonial borders and then actually preventing trade between them. So something that Hezbollah talks about quite often, actually, that Nasrallah talks about in his speeches is he talks about a unified region economically right? An economically unified region, right? Lebanon can't produce everything in Lebanon. Syria can't produce everything in Syria. Iraq can't produce everything in Iraq. These places, you know, they don't have the biodiversity to produce and, and, and consume and everything becomes sustainable. But regionally, they absolutely do. Iraq has a lot of agriculture. Uh, Syria has a lot of factories and a lot of people who are like workers. Lebanon has ports, right? It has access to the Mediterranean Sea. If you added these together, you could have an economically viable, sustainable region that didn't have to depend on importing from Europe and importing from America and, and these international financial institutions for their own basic survival. Iraq has oil, for God's sakes, right? Um, so a lot of the policies in place, and this brings you back to Syria. You asked about Syria. Well, the U.S. military has personnel also stationed at the border between Iraq and Syria, and that does prevent trade. And Nasrallah has actually mentioned that in his speech before. He's mentioned the U.S. troop presence at the border of Iraq and Syria prevents trade even from Iraq to Lebanon, prevents land trade. I mean, right now, the... Um, Right now, it's not just the U.S. military presence. It's also the sanctions. Right now, Lebanon is des in desperate need of fuel. Well, Egypt and Jordan have offered to send Lebanon natural gas and other forms of fuel for its electricity, to provide electricity, right? But it would have to go through Syria. And if it goes through Syria, that means that Cairo and Amman would have to pay Syria transit fees. But this is where we got into an obstacle, right? Because transit fees to the Syrian government would be in violation of the U.S. Caesar Act. And so until the U.S. gives the OK and says, well, we won't like uh, punish you for doing this. These countries who are literally neighbors can't well, send fuel to Lebanon. Well, I need to point out here that while the United States is slapping these sanctions on Lebanon, on Syria, so that they don't have this these trade options with neighboring countries uh the united states is actively occupying the oil fields and israel is actively arming groups like the sdf they're actively arming uh groups uh in iraq as well with the kurds yep. and getting oil from those groups mm -hmm. and so while lebanon and syria are suffering and iran is suffering from these sanctions 
Israel and the United States are continuing to plunder these nations of their resources. Did I get yes. that right, Rania? Yes, you got that perfectly right. I couldn't have said it better. <laughs> so, so in terms of Israel, um, you know, we let's talk about Israel because they are uh, one of the biggest beneficiaries of these oil fields that are being occupied. And in Turkey, of course, we didn't really talk about Turkey a lot, but Turkey is as well. But I want to talk about Israel more. Um, Israel is one of the biggest beneficiaries of uh, the Kurds occupying oil fields in Iraq and then also in um, Syria. So, and then Israel also has been recently hitting Syria with airstrikes mm-hmm. um, and drone strikes. So what is Israel's role in this current crisis that we're talking about here? I mean, Israel is so in so many ways, Israel's at the center of a lot of it because Israel's this arm of American imperialism in the region. It's America's police in the region. Um, And that's its that's its purpose as the settler colonial entity to be like America's uh, guard dog, if you will. Right. And so Israel in Syria is, you know, the whole you also sometimes you can't. Israelis and Americans don't understand things as well as they think they do. They think Iran is like is everywhere in Syria. So they think that when they're hitting Syria, they're, they think that they're weakening Iran. They're obsessed with, especially Israel. Israel is obsessed with the idea that Iran and, and, and they just see Hezbollah as an extension of Iran, that Iran and through Hezbollah is getting strong in Israel to one day attack Israel. So he's getting strong in Syria to one day attack Israel. So Israel regularly bombs Syria like regularly and they're just allowed to do it. Like nobody says anything. Sometimes I think that there's like some sort of state department automated messaging system that just goes into effect whenever anybody hits Israel back. It automatically is Israel has a right to defend itself. But Israel every single day is provoking every country around it. It violates Lebanese airspace every single day to spy on Syria, to spy on Lebanon, uh, to scare the Lebanese. And it, bomb Syria like every month, sometimes several times a month. And no one ever says a word, no one. Um, and it kills people when it does it. Like it, sometimes it, it bombs and nobody dies. Other times it actually kills people, it kills Syrian soldiers. It kills, sometimes they kill Hezbollah soldiers. Sometimes there's been a couple times where they actually have killed Iranians who aren't even fighting in Syria. They're, they're just there in an advisory capacity. They don't have bases in Syria. Um, but anyways, that's what Israel sees its war in Syria as it's bombing of Syria as something it has to do to make sure Iran doesn't gain like a foothold on its border. And it's also obsessed with trying to make sure it can keep the Golan Heights forever. That's a big part of it as well. Um, so that's what Israel's role in Syria is now. Now, before Israel's role in Syria, uh, was also arming and funding jihadist groups, uh, in the in the Golan on the Syrian Golan side, and I actually reported on this. I met with people who had initially joined the rebels, and then once in the Golan area, and once they found out the rebels were working with the Israelis or were being aided by the Israelis at the border, they quit and they switched sides back to the government because they were like, "That's like the, that that was their red line," especially for people in the Golan who maybe like some of their family live on the other side and they've been separated from each other. Maybe they lost a home in the area that Israel still occupies. Um, so anyways, that's, that's really Israel's role. And, and then there's Israel's role in the broader, more abstract, but very real sense as a Jewish state, Israel was the first sectarian state imposed on the middle East. 
right? It's the first state that balkanized the Middle East by sect, where, you know, it wasn't just European Jews uh, that came and took over land in Palestine as settlers. They also brought in, you know, Jewish communities from Baghdad, from Yemen. They like took Jewish communities of all Jews have always lived in the Middle East. Their history is not the same as the history of European Jews, but it like stole Jews from the Middle East, Arab Jews, brought them into the settler colony in what became Israel, and then inf- and then imposed a European Jewish identity onto them. Like, so their identity, all these Arab Jews that actually make up a majority, I think at this point of the Israeli Jewish population, their history has become the Holocaust and has become something that happened in Europe that has nothing to do with, with them, their, their ancestors in Baghdad or in Yemen or Morocco. Um, so Israel just being the first sectarian state in the region in and of itself, like was like a cataclysmic event uh, that that was like the first thing that re- first first method of modern day imperialism that really societally shattered the Middle East, and it's just been ongoing since. It's so been many early. Shia Christian, yeah. like we you know, like you know, I always cite this um, cite this study that I, I don't remember what the study where the study came from, but I always cite this in one in my speeches uh, when I'm giving presentations about sectarianism in the Middle East. But in 2000, the year 2000, one year before September 11th, um, a survey was conducted in the Middle East to ask people who their biggest number one enemy was. And every single one of them said Israel and the United States. And mm-hmm. the rest of the people had said in the survey, like who, when they, when, when, when they were asked um, who were, who was the number one like hero in the Middle East, it was Hezbollah. <laughs> it was mm-hmm. Hezbollah. And so the way forward since that study t- took place when after 9-11, which became basically a launching pad for like a U.S. invasion into Iraq, then into, you know, Afghanistan, then into Iraq, sectarianism really was used as a tool to completely divide and conquer the Middle East region and to mm-hmm. promote this balkanization that you very brilliantly described. And I think it's so important to note that this sectarianism is 100% a tool of Western imperialism. You cannot look at the region without truly understanding this concept and understand how divide and conquer is utilized um, to balkanize the Middle mm-hmm. East. There, you know, Rania, you and I have been the victim of so many like attacks by sectarian Muslims and Arab and people mm-hmm. who claim to be experts on the region who continuously, th- you know, use that those sectarian cards against us yep. when we point this out. But really, they're just they're they're actually being used as tools to promote that sectarian narrative. Exactly. Not better. Like I mean, I mean, I remember like six, what, six, seven years ago, you and I were like constantly being attacked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, that was rough. That was rough. <laughs> you know, I would say that there's definitely it's lessened um, in the sense yeah, that you know yeah. you mentioned Hezbollah. There was like that. The, there was that poll you're talking about. I mean, Hezbollah was like the most. Nasrallah was the, one of the most popular figures across sect across the region like even in egypt which is like a very sunny country like it's the first time that that somebody has had that i think much popularity and it was after the war in 2006 because hezbollah pushed israel out again of lebanon successfully and that made nasrallah very popular and that was very scary for the americans and one way they went about destroying that uh cross-sect pol- popularity is they actually embarked 
in collusion with the uh, Saudi intelligence chief at the time, Prince Bandar, uh, and Dick Cheney. This was their brainchild. They embarked on a regional strategy of basically pushing anti-Shia sectarianism, pushing Wahhabi ideology, like, in media. And there was actually a dramatic shift even in Al Jazeera. Al Jazeera Arabic went from being almost like a kind of resurrection of this pan-Arabism to becoming, like, genocidally sectarian against non-Sunnis. And promoting a lot of the jihadist groups. Yeah, like, they, I mean, Qatar, Qatar funded al-Nusra. Like, they literally funded al-Nusra. I mean, Joe Biden said it, okay? Like, everybody knows that it's true. They funded al-Nusra. Um, so, you know, it, it, it was a, a strategy that was deployed, and, you know, it, it started in Iraq, but nobody really noticed it. it was kind of isolated to Iraq in a way. Um, because Iraq, what was happening in Iraq was happening in Iraq. It wasn't, it didn't impact people's views of the war in 2006, even though there, it was like the height of the civil war in Iraq um, between Sunnis and Shias and like the rise of Al Qaeda in Iraq and bombing Shia mosques and all that Wahhabi stuff was on the rise in Iraq and being funded by Saudi Arabia. Um, And that was having devastating impact in Iraq, but it was in Iraq, right? You didn't see that start to happen in Lebanon until 2008. Um, Until after this policy of really using the media to ratchet and, and, and political puppets to ratchet up, anti-Shia hate to connect. I mean, it was a, it was really a campaign against Iran. It was a way to get people in the region to hate Iran and hate Hezbollah is you, you campaign hard against the Shias and the best ideology to do that is the ideology that hates Shias the most, which is Salafi Wahhabism. Um, and that's why it was funded. Like this was funded. It wasn't natural. I mean, yes, every, every place, you know, there is some pockets of the, like of the middle East that where I'm Salafis did exist, right? Like, Wahhabism maybe existed, but to this extent, it was funded to the tune of billions of dollars. This wasn't organic and it wasn't natural. It was what you're talking about. It was divide and conquer. And it was using this right-wing religious tyrannical genocidal ideology to fracture the region and to try and weaken opponents of American imperialism. And it worked for a time. It really did. It worked quite well. I mean, it even confused, you know, there was an alliance between Hamas and Hezbollah that was slightly fractured because the Syrian civil war, the Hamas affiliate in, inside parts of Syria sided with the rebel groups because, you know, the Hamas is affiliated with Muslim Brotherhood. Um, and I guess in this case, that trumped, you know, the the axis of resistance. And they actually, has, you know, they taught the jihadi rebel groups how to... Uh, build tunnels, which they learned from Hezbollah, who interestingly enough learned it from the North Vietnamese, but that's another story. Um, But anyways, they taught the rebel groups how to build uh, tunnels, and that was seen as a huge betrayal, uh, especially by the political leadership of Hamas. But, and it also for several years was a a distraction from the cause of Palestine. But I think something very interesting that happened this year was with this recent war on Gaza and this kind of like uprising across the region of Palestinians, um, both inside 48 Palestine in the West Bank and Gaza, as well as Palestinian refugees across the region in this really unified way we hadn't seen in a long time. I think that this really was the sort of like death of the U.S. strategy to use 
this Salafi Wahhabi ideology to break the resistance axis because it reminded everybody of who the enemy is. Because this was after the normalization deals, right? Normalization with the UAE and Bahrain and Israel, countries that were never at war, but somehow, you know, made peace with Israel, a country they never never at war with. Um, and, you know, the sort of like under uh, unofficial normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel, this was supposed to lead to a better situation for Palestine. But the opposite happened. And it really like showed the reality of what's happening. I mean, this was the first time in a long time my Iraqi friends were obsessing over what was happening in Palestine because usually they don't really care anymore. They have their own issues to deal with. It was with. the first time I noticed it too where everybody came together and people united yeah. across all political fronts and were like, mm-hmm. you know, it, what Israel is doing to the Palestinians is wrong. It was like a reminder. It was like all of a sudden people weren't talking about Syria anymore. People weren't talking about yep. what was happening in Lebanon anymore or even Yemen. All eyes were on Palestine. Exactly. 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 And I think that that was a really powerful moment because it just shows that despite all the money and all the weapons and all the jihadi groups, and I mean, it's definitely devastated the region. I'm not trying to paint a rosy picture, but despite all that, people aren't stupid and they still recognize that Israel is an arm of the Americans and is a destructive force in the region and they won't accept it. They're, they're stupid, tyrannical governments can accept it all they want and play friends. And, you know, the UAE, the fake country, <laughs> the Amer- you know, these fake Gulf countries that like weren't even countries that mattered until they happened to strike oil. <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> they can all, I mean, like they, they, and it was the first time, you know, you even saw with Jordan. I mean, it was the first time I saw the Jordanian government actually allow citizens to break the barrier to the West Bank. That's what happened. I mean, I really think that this was a turning point. Um, so I think that, that, that like, it, it was really the death knell of this U S strategy to try to use sectarianism to rupture uh, the central issue in the region, which remains Palestine. It absolutely, absolutely is. And I think that's, and because Palestine is the issue for Arabs in the region, sectarianism will continue be, to continue to be used to divide uh, exactly. the Middle East. Um, yeah. It's going to continue to be used as a tool. But as you just said, I agree with you. I think that that tool is being weakened um, by resistance in the in the region and by just people's, you know, hearts when they see the victims of Israeli occupation and apartheid and just the victims of these Israeli airstrikes in Gaza. I mean, completely devastating um, imagery coming out of Gaza until this day. I mean, over 30,000 people were left homeless. Over 200 people died, um, including over 70 children in Gaza. Um, You know, Israel is losing the information war, which is why Israel is at the forefront of the censorship campaign and misinformation campaign with social media tech giants like Facebook um, and why Israeli censors are sitting on the boards of like free speech courts or why the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, we all love the ADL, right? The ADL is partnering up with social media giants and YouTube. That's why they're going so hard against independent media and independent journalism and so hard against, you know, smearing uh, alternative journalists like yourself, Rania. It's because we are winning the information war. And so the only way that they know how to do things is by censoring, censoring. censoring. It's through a very, very hawkish approach. Um, But Rania, thank you so much for joining us today. I mean, I 
it was such a, a rich conversation. I'm sure so many people learned so much from you. Um, tell people where they can find your work. Um, you can find my work at breakthrough news. I follow us on, you can follow us on breakthrough news on YouTube. And then of course you can follow me on Twitter at Rania Kalik. And, uh, you can also follow, I post most of my stuff on my website, RaniaKalik.com. And uh, Manar, I want to thank you too. This was really, it was so nice to like chat with you about this stuff. I really do. Thank you. I know it's been so good talking to you and, and we'll catch up to on a personal level, but I just want to let everybody know, please follow Rania and her work at Breakthrough News. She's an incredible, very important journalist to follow. Um, and for all of those who have watched this live stream and enjoyed it, please consider becoming a Patreon uh, member on our Patreon page and share this where you can to help us beat social media algorithms. And one last thing I just want to say to remind everybody that uh, this live stream will be available on our YouTube channel as soon as it's down. Uh, as soon as we go offline and then also uh, available as um, an audio podcast uh, within the next mm. 24 hours under Mintcast. And we'll, we'll post all of these links in uh, under the live stream. But thank you so much, everybody, for joining us. And thank you, Rania. Thank you, Manar.